We are in the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew, continuing um, our study of this book. That's page number 977 uh, of your Pew Bibles, and we will be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Some of you are fortunate enough to have a bookmark in your new Pew Bible, taking you right to it. The rest of you, I hope you will catch up with us. Quickly. Hear the word of the Lord. Just incidentally, we always say thanks be to God when we get done reading uh, the Bible. And that's a tradition. I mean, there's no law that says we have to say thanks be to God. But just so you know, the reason we do that is because we're so grateful that the God of the universe who created everything would speak to us. And we want him to know that we are grateful. So that's why we say it. It's not a rote thing that we do. It's a, it's a cry of a thankful heart for speaking to us. So let's hear God's word with gratitude this morning. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we begin this morning uh, reminding ourselves uh, with what happened in the passage from last week. Last week in the book of Matthew, we reached a, a major turning point where Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, declared aloud that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's because Jesus is the Savior, he's the King of Israel, he's the one and only unique Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds to Peter's confession by praising him, or sorry, praising God uh, for revealing that to him. And the reason is, is, is because it's a miracle. It's a gift from God any time 
A sinner comes to the place where he or she recognizes who Jesus truly is. And then right after this great confession, Jesus tells Peter and the disciples that he's going to build his church on them and on their testimony. And then he's going to give them the keys of the kingdom to unlock and to lock the kingdom of heaven for people as they preach this message about Jesus. But he's not giving them that authority just yet. Our passage closed last week with Jesus forbidding them to tell anyone who he is. And the reason he doesn't want them to tell anyone who he really is yet is because even though they've rightly identified Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God, they don't fully understand what that means for Jesus. Nor do they fully understand what that will mean for them. So they've come a long way, but they have more to learn. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to begin to help the disciples see what it means that he is the Christ and the Son of the living God. It means that he's going to suffer and die. And it also means that anyone who wants to follow Jesus must also follow Jesus' example. And this is all really good news. Uh, So my outline this morning is very simple. Uh, First, we're going to look at what this passage is saying, and then we're going to look at what this passage is teaching. And and the reason I'm dividing it up this way this morning is because I want us to sit under the full weight of what the passage is saying, because I think this is one of those passages that die by a thousand Protestant qualifications. And so we're going to sit under what it's really saying, and then we're going to go back through it and look at what it's teaching us, okay? Uh, So first, what this passage is saying— It's a wonderful thing when Jesus opens up our hearts and our minds to see who he really is. And the disciples, they've been following Jesus for many months, probably a few years at this point. They've heard his teaching privately and publicly. They've seen his miracles, as we discussed last week. And God's opened their spiritual eyes to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior and King of Israel. And the And the disciples, like every other Jew at this time, were waiting for a political Messiah. They were waiting and hoping for a king who would sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and who would conquer the Romans. Just like many people in our world today, they thought their biggest problem in life is outside of them. They thought of only our world could be organized with the proper structures and the proper leadership. If we had the right king, if we had the right economic policy, if we had the right political structure, then everything would be okay. But as we've known from the first chapter of Matthew, Jesus did not come, up to, did not come to set up an earthly kingdom in his first coming. He came to save his people from their sins. And so Matthew tells us, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So when Matthew tells us from that time, he's talking about the the moment 
that Peter and the rest of the disciples understood that he is the Christ and the Son of the living God. And so from that time, Jesus began to show them what that means. It means that he must suffer and die and rise again. And he begins showing this to them because he's going to have to keep showing it to them. All the way up to the moment when he does die. And in fact, they're not really going to understand what he's been talking about this whole time until after he rises from the dead. And notice he says he must go to Jerusalem. Well, why? Why Jerusalem? It's the city of David. It's where the temple is. It's where the sacrifices are made. It's the city where all of God's prophets are killed. And he must suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. They will not ultimately be won over by Jesus. In fact, they will be the ones who petition the Roman government to put Jesus on a cross. And he must suffer and be killed and rise again. And this is the way it must be. Why? Because this is the only way that Jesus can save his people from their sins. Also, because this is to fulfill what was already written in the scriptures. Also, this is God's plan. This is God's will. And Jesus always does the will of the Father. Listen to how the disciples will pray in the book of Acts after Jesus dies and rises again. They pray, for truly in this city, talking about Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, right, the anointed one, the Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God predestined and planned Jesus to suffer and die in Jerusalem at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And this must all happen because God had planned it from before the foundation of the world. But notice, Jesus doesn't just predict his death. He also predicts his resurrection. Included in all the terrible things that must happen to him is the fact that on the third day, he will rise again. He will be raised, we're told. Well, who's going to raise him? God, right? This is the glory that awaits him. The first time he clearly mentions his death, he's already pointing forward to the power and the authority of his kingdom that will be his after he submits himself to the will of the Father. But this is all very different than what Peter had in mind. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And it's interesting that here Peter is, having just declared him to be, you know, the king. And he thinks he can tell the king what to do. Now some people are really hard on Peter here. They suggest that Peter's already eyeing the money and the power and the prestige that will be his because he's on Jesus' inner circle. And that very well could be part of it, but let's try and put ourselves in Peter's shoes for a moment. 
Could it be that Peter loves Jesus and doesn't want him to die? Peter loves Israel. And Peter knows that Jesus would be a wonderful king. How many of us are longing for leaders who are powerful and yet good and kind and wise? Right? Our options are not, are so limited. And yet here this man is, Jesus. And Peter's thinking to himself, you would be such a wonderful king. So Peter knows who Jesus is, but Peter doesn't know yet that his biggest problem in life is not the Romans. He doesn't know yet that his biggest problem in life is that he's a sinner and that God is holy. And this word for rebuke here is a word that just means a talking to. So don't, don't imagine that Jesus is being scolded here by Peter. Peter's just taking him aside and saying, Lord, you don't deserve to die. You have the power to avoid being killed. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? Israel needs you. Peter's saying, Jesus, you could easily be our king without having to die. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So back in chapter 4, if you recall, uh, Jesus was in the wilderness, and Satan came and tempted him. And Satan offered Jesus this exact same thing. Jesus off, or Satan offered Jesus a kingdom without the cross. But now, but now Jesus is being offered this, not by Satan, who wants to destroy him and rule over him, but by his friend. It's coming from somebody who loves Jesus, who honestly and sincerely wants to see him ruling. Peter wants Jesus to live. He wants Jesus to be his king. And guess what? Those are really good desires. But Peter wants it without a cross, which is satanic. So Jesus tells him to get behind me, which just means get out of my way, Peter. You're hindering me. And that word for hindrance could be translated a stumbling block. Jesus is saying, I'm headed to the cross, Peter, and you are trying to trip me up. So in our passage last week, when Peter is saying true things about Jesus, he's the foundation of the church. But this week, when Peter is speaking from his heart and saying what makes sense to him, no matter how well-intentioned, he's a stumbling block. Because Peter is setting his mind on the things of man rather than things of God. In our natural state, our minds and our hearts are filled with worldly thinking. That means all of our intuitions all of the things that naturally make sense to us need to be refined and changed and altered and formed and shaped by the word of God. The only way to be sure we are setting our minds on the things of God is to so soak our minds in God's word 
that we think God's thoughts after him. And Peter obviously has a lot more to learn, so Jesus goes on. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that word if, it's conditional. So the only way to be Jesus' disciple, Jesus is saying here, is to be somebody who denies ourselves, takes up our cross, and follows him. This includes Peter and the rest of the disciples. This includes you and me. We must deny ourselves. This means we will desire to do things that are sinful, and we must deny ourselves of those desires. And then we must take up our cross, which means whatever suffering or grief God puts in our life, which includes the unique suffering that will come to us as as Christians, we must bear that suffering knowing that like all good things in this life, it comes to us from God's fatherly hand. And then we follow him to our deaths, but also to our resurrection. Jesus goes on, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is why we began this morning in our call to worship with Psalm 1. There are only two paths in this life. We can try and save our life on our own through trying to earn God's favor by our works, through trying to earn the world's favor by gaining power and wealth and influence and having everyone think how wonderful we are, or by living for pleasure. So many people try and save their lives through drinking and food and sex and entertainment. And the truth is, most of us are tempted by some combination of all three of these. Or we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And a life of self-denial will feel like death but it is the only way to life. For, or because, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So we can gain the whole world, we can have everything this world has to offer, riches and power and pleasure, we can be the person everyone is envious of, but it won't be enough because at the end of our life, None of that will cover the price of our soul. Our soul will be lost, and there will be nothing that we have to give to buy it back. Jesus goes on, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. First, Jesus will go to Jerusalem. He'll suffer. He'll die. He'll rise again. Then he'll ascend to heaven. And then he will return to judge. And on that day, there will be two kinds of people. There will be those who loved this world and the pleasures of this world. They loved comfort and security. They loved the applause of men. And Jesus will repay them for what they have done. And then there will be those who denied themselves, took up their cross, and followed Jesus. 
These are those who knew how valuable their soul really is, and by faith they chose to lose their life on this earth in order to gain their soul. They chose to die to this world and boast only in Christ. As Paul says in Galatians, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And when Jesus returns as judge, those who denied themselves, took up their cross, and followed him will receive their reward. They will receive the crown of life. They will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And finally, Jesus concludes by encouraging his disciples with these words. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we know this is not talking about Jesus' return at the end of time, because the disciples will see it in their lifetimes. It will happen before they taste death. Some suggest this is referring to the transfiguration, which we'll uh, look at next week, and and that is one possibility. I'm persuaded that what this is talking about is Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. They're going to see him come into his kingdom, and then they're going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, coming upon them to go out and to preach the good news of the kingdom, of what God has done for sinners. They're going to witness people repent of their sins and believe in the good news. And they're going to watch those people deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. And they're going to get to see all of that in their lifetime. So that's what this passage is saying. So what is this passage teaching us? Just to repeat myself, the the reason I'm doing it this way is because what this passage was saying, when we just went through it, I think it's just so clear. I think it's so clear what it's saying, but it's, it's a difficult teaching. It's difficult because you and I struggle every day to truly put that into practice. Okay? But Jesus is clear, right? There's only one path to life, and that's following him to our deaths. So first, this passage teaches us that God loves sinners very much. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is John 3.16, right? It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, God loves this world that he created so much. God loves sinners so much that he gave his only son. And what I love about our passage this morning is it actually tells us what it looked like for God to give his only son. He gave his son to suffer. Isaiah tells us that Jesus was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes of Israel, the people who made up the highest court in Israel. They will convict Jesus, the son of the living God, of blasphemy. These are the men who should have known and welcomed him, and they're the very ones who handed him over to the Romans. And then he was whipped whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross, and he actually suffocated to death. I don't know if you know this, but 
But, but crucifixion, what kills you is you can't breathe. And so Jesus is on the cross having to pull himself up by his nail-pierced hands and push himself up by his nail-pierced feet just to let out a breath. And eventually that gets so exhausting that you give up and you suffocate to death. And he did all of this because he loves sinners. And, he, and we needed to know how awful our sin is, that it required the death of God's perfect, sinless son in our place to save us, but we also needed to know how much God loved us. He loved us so much that he was willing to come and to lay down his life like this so that whoever believes in him will not die but will have eternal life. Second, this passage teaches us that every evil thing that happens in this world is part of God's plan. So the fact that Jesus knows he will suffer and die and rise again shows us that he is in control of all of history. Right? We, we cannot predict the future. We have uh, people who can predict weather patterns and, you know, tell you about when they think it's going to rain. I was just in Missouri uh, last week visiting my parents, and uh, they can't even do that there. The weather's so unpredictable in Missouri, I don't even know why, but it'll, it'll show on your thing, oh, it's going to rain today, and then it won't rain, or it's not going to rain, and then it rains. I, it's, like, we cannot predict the future, but Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. And then God places a literal cross before him, and then he willingly and knowingly travels to Jerusalem, submits himself to the will of God, and a brutal death. And this is truly the most evil act in all of human history, because Jesus is the most sinless, perfect, worthy being. And God planned it. And he did so to accomplish the greatest good that has ever taken place in human history, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God puts our sin on his shoulders and his righteousness on us when we simply believe. And we can know that every time God puts a cross before us, this pattern is repeating itself. When we receive the diagnosis, when we suffer, when a loved one dies, when we lose our job, when our marriage remains difficult day in and day out, when the world thinks that we're fools because we believe a Jewish carpenter from 2,000 years ago died and rose again and is actually the son of the living God. When the struggle never lets up, we can know that this is from God for our good. We can take up our cross that he's putting before us and we can follow him knowing as hard as it is, that God is using it for his glory and for our good. Third, this passage teaches us that it's possible to have faith, to love Jesus with good intentions, and to still be deadly wrong. So when Jesus first tells Peter about his death and resurrection, Peter cannot believe it. But remember, we just found out last week that Peter's a true believer. 
God the Father has supernaturally revealed to Peter Jesus' identity, and Peter believes it. But because his mind is set on the things of man instead of the things of God, he is deadly wrong about what it looks like for Jesus to save us and what it looks like for him to follow Jesus. So just because we love Jesus, just because we have a sincere faith, doesn't mean that the things that we think or we feel are true. Our mind and our heart and our feelings and our intuitions must be shaped by the word of God. The fact that Jesus substituted himself for us on the cross must remain the center of our Christianity. There are many sincere, well-meaning people like Peter here who are trying to remove the cross from Christianity and make it all about something else. And the things they usually make it all about are really good things, like caring for the poor and doing justice, making sure that good leaders come to power. But if we want those things apart from the cross of Christ, then, the, then they're satanic. There are many sincere, well-meaning people who want to remove the cross from Christianity by telling people God wants them to be healthy and happy and rich, or that they don't have to deny themselves their particular sexual desires. A Christianity without the cross, or a Christianity that tells us we don't have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, is satanic, no matter how much we gen genuinely, sincerely love Jesus. And I think this is where we get confused, because we see somebody who might actually, like Peter here, have, have an understanding of who Jesus is. And they, they love Jesus, and they're sincere, but they're deadly wrong. So may we all be so soaked in God's word that we seek the things of God rather than the things of man. Fourth, the necessity of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus does not contradict the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. Someone, someone says that in order to be a disciple of Jesus that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, that kind of sounds like legalism to our Protestant ears. It sounds like what we're saying is that we must do something in order to be saved. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. This is where the distinction between what faith is and what faith does is so important. Okay? We have to know what faith is, that it's looking to Christ, it's resting on Him, it's knowing that He loves us, that God sent his son to die for us, and that all we do is believe and receive the gift of salvation from him. But the, but the person who does that, right, that's the direct act of faith. When we see all of Christ, all of who he is, all of what he's done, all of his promises to us, and we receive those promises by faith, that's salvation. And that happens by the direct act of faith. And then there's the reflex act of faith. 
The person who's truly looking to Christ and Christ alone, the reflex of that, the the movement from that place is into a life of repentance and self-denial and following him, not as a way of earning our salvation, but because we are saved. We know from our passage this morning that salvation is all of Christ. He is the one who must suffer and die on the cross in our place to pay the penalty that we can never pay. He is the perfect Savior. He paid the infinite price of his perfect life. That is why he had to go to Jerusalem for the joy that was set before him. He despised the cross and its shame. Out of love for us, he came and lived and died and rose again. And he did so to free us from our sin. To free us from the guilt of our sin and the power of our sin. And so when we receive the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that news bids us come and die and find that I may truly live. As Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we don't deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus to earn our place in his kingdom. We deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him because we've been given a place in his kingdom by sheer grace through faith. And this is what it looks like to be alive in his kingdom. When we receive Christ by faith, we not only receive the gift of forgiveness, but we receive a new heart, a heart where he takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, which means we desire him. We desire his ways. God tells Ezekiel that one of the blessings of the new covenant is that I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. One of the gifts of God's grace, one of the promises of God that we receive by faith in salvation is the desire to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Because he will cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. And this is not earning our salvation. It is the gift of grace because God is the one causing it. Yes, we are commanded, as Paul says in Colossians 3, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We really do deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And yes, denying ourselves will feel like death, but when we do it, when we carry out this command, we know that it was not us, but Christ in us. Paul tells the Corinthian church this. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And remember, grace is God's free gift. It's his favor towards us that we don't deserve. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me, oh, sorry, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So we do deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, but not in order to be saved. 
He is the one who emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. He is the one who freed us from the power of darkness and sin and brought us into the kingdom of Christ. He is the one who opened our eyes to the misery and the sorrow of sin and death and granted us a new life in Christ so that we might no longer be slaves to sin. And then he promises us life and immortality. And all we do is believe that he has done and is doing all of this. And the result and the evidence of our belief is that we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow this wonderful Savior who has done it all for us because he loves us so much. When we receive Christ by faith, we see what sin really is. And so we take up whatever cross of suffering and grief he's laid at our feet because we know he's using it for his kingdom and to conform us to the likeness of Christ. And then we follow Jesus through the narrow gate, along the narrow road, because that is the path to life. And we know that the path of sin is the path of sorrow and death that he has freed us from. Christian, this is why the life of a Christian is a moment-by-moment life of repentance and faith. Because denying ourselves is so difficult. And the very beginning of denying ourselves for so many of us, practically speaking, and I include myself in this, is coming to God and just confessing that I don't want to deny myself. That I am so sinful that I, in my foolishness, prefer this sin over you, God. Please, 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 forgive me and change me right? And then we turn from the sin to him for his mercy and his grace that he gives us in abundance, and we receive it directly from him because we need it constantly, constantly. And and for some of us here this morning, denying ourselves is going to look like denying ourselves of fleshly desires and sins that we are ensnared by. And that's going to be a difficult process. It it may require telling somebody what we're going through and what we want to do. But in so doing, let us rejoice that we even have the desire. Let us rejoice that God has given us eyes to see that sin is misery and that Christ is life. And then let us move by faith toward Christ in repentance knowing that he is our life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we just admit that this is hard teaching for us to hear. We so easily go along thinking the thoughts of the world that we don't even know our thoughts of the world. We so easily go along indulging in our sin thinking, well, at least I know you'll forgive me. And yet, Father, we know that's true, that you will forgive us. But you've promised us so much more, Father. You've promised to conform us to the likeness of your Son, 
And the truth is, God, we desire that so much more. Father, we want to be people who love you, who are transformed by you, who walk with you moment by moment in repentance and faith and holiness. Father, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back and be prideful, but so that we can worship you more wholly and completely, so we can walk with a clear conscience, so that we can love our neighbor as ourself, and so that we can be used as a tool in your hand to bring others to Christ, so that they might know his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.